Father in heaven, we thank you so much again. Lord, that we can be like Mary and just sit at the feet of Jesus. Lord, we know that you are the God who lifts burdens. You are the God who invites us to come into your presence where we may find rest. Jesus, we pray that you would bless us with the Holy Spirit, that you would guide us to all truth. We want to see Jesus today, Lord. We thank you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, what I do every single night is I do a little bit of review about the previous night because each night is built upon the previous night. And I know yesterday that we covered a very heavy topic. And so we're going to do a little bit of review and it's just going to be the runway as we take off for our next topic, okay? Tonight's message is entitled Antichrist Exposed Part 2. Antichrist Exposed Part 2. Friday night is going to be a message called Antichrist's Greatest Deception. That is a message you do not want to miss. And that's Friday night. We also have a Saturday morning message and a Saturday night message. It's a two for one, so you'll be blessed as well. Uh, We only have, I hope you know this, just a week and a half left of our seminar. There you go. I was waiting for that. Just a week and a half left. And you know what, folks? God has been blessing us, and you may not even realize it, but you have grown. You've actually grown. Um, You know, it's interesting, if you were to look at a plant, you see that the plant is green, and you look at the plant, and you remark, wow, that plant is growing. But you don't actually see the plant is growing, but it's growing nonetheless. Just like you, you may not even notice there's been some changes in your life, but I promise you this, when you come into the presence of God, you cannot help but be changed. Amen? All right, now let's go to God's Word, and we're going to do a little bit of review. We learned that when we covered the Antichrist, that there are several names for the Antichrist. We learned he's called the man of sin. We learned that he's called the lawless one. We also learned he's called the beast of Revelation 13, the son of perdition, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. As we're going throughout Scripture, you're going to notice that every one of these individuals are talking about the same entity. The same entity. And we discovered when we were doing some study yesterday more about the little horn power of Daniel chapter 7. We also discovered that the word antichrist does not mean who is one who outrightly opposes Christ or God, but one who tries to take the place of. In other words, an attempted substitute. And we discovered that the Antichrist is not somebody who is just outwardly attacking Christ, but somebody who's trying to be a substitute for our mediator in heaven. Can you say amen to that? And we'll look at some of the biblical characteristics of the Antichrist. We discovered from Daniel chapter 7, he would rise up out of the seas. He would pluck up three kingdoms or three tribes after divided Rome. We learned that he was a religious power that receives worship. And he would rule for 42 prophetic months. And that is so remarkable because that is a key identifier point, identification point in discovering the identity of the Antichrist. We also learned that there were a few more characteristics. He would persecute God's saints or God's people. He would think to change times and laws. There's a reason why he's called the lawless one. He has a big problem with God's law. We also discovered he would speak pompous words, arrogant words, and he would blaspheme. You know what's also remarkable about that is that the Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy. Do you know why they accused Jesus of blasphemy? 
It was for two reasons. Number one, claiming to be God. And number two, claiming to forgive sins. But when we look at this little horn power, we discover that he actually really does commit blasphemy, claiming to be God and claiming to forgive sins. We also discovered that he would have a deadly wound, but that deadly wound would be healed. We also learned that the whole world would wander after this beast power and that his number would be 666. And when you take these 10 key identifiers, you look at them, it fits perfectly to only one power, and that is the papal Rome system, the Roman church system that took place from pagan Rome all the way to papal Rome. This is what the Bible describes as that little horn power of Daniel chapter 7. And when you look at all the characteristics found in the Bible, you discover that it's this power, this system, that God has a big problem with. Now, a question comes up. Wait a second. Why is it that this system is identified in Scripture as a system of error and not the system of Hinduism or the system of Islam or the system of Buddhism when every one of those systems are an error as well? Here's the thing to understand. It is counterfeits that closely resemble the truth that caused... Now, pay attention to me that cause more damage to the character of Christ. It is counterfeits to the real deal that cause more damage to the work of God, to the character of God, and it is counterfeits that actually lead more people away from the truth of who God is. The second reason is this, is because this beast power will play a key prophetic role in the future. This key, pro this key uh, player will play a role in the future. Now, this is extremely important. This is why it's, uh, it's necessary that you continue to come out to this seminar because this next week we're going to learn more and more about how this power is going to play a very important role in the future. Daniel chapter 7, verse 24 to 25, I want you to see... The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and that was Rome. And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones. He shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints will be given into his hands for a time, a times, and half a time. And you can clearly see by just doing some history that after Babylon came Medo-Persia, after Medo-Persia came... Greece, and after Greece came Rome, and this is where Daniel chapter 7, verse 24 starts. And after Rome came ten tribes. And who would come after these ten tribes? It would be one power, and the Bible teaches that he would pluck up three of these tribes. And sure enough, it was the papal power. All you need to do is just take an elementary history book, and you'll discover that's exactly what took place. The top three tribes do no, lo no longer exist. They were wiped out by the papal power. And sure enough, there are only seven, seven of these entities that remain today, and they are modern European nations. And sure enough, this was done by the papal power. We also discover that the papal power is a religious power that receives worship, not just directing worship to God, but also receives worship in the various ceremonies. You know, I was born and raised a Hindu. I know exactly what Hinduism looks like. And folks, I want to tell you something. 
in the system of the Roman church system, there is Hinduism there. I know exactly what Hinduism looks like. And you see the similarities that are there. You also discover that the worldwide power of papal Rome became official in A.D. 538 when Emperor Justinian's decree made the papacy supreme. Making the papacy supreme was no longer opposed. The papacy was dealt what appeared to be a death blow in 1798. And that's exactly 42 prophetic months, 1,260 years to the mark. There were plenty of reformers who were during that time who were predicting on this year the papacy would lose its power. And sure enough, it took place by Napoleon's general. The papal power was stripped on that year. And you can see that by looking into simple history. You also discover that during the Dark Ages that the Church of Rome shed more innocent blood than any other institution. Millions upon millions upon millions of Christians who stood for the Word of God were persecuted. You know, it's very interesting. One of my favorite heroes of the Protestant Reforma Reformation was a man by the name of Thomas Cranmer. He was a very interesting individual. He was involved in the Protestant Reformation and bringing back those beautiful truths that were lost during the Dark Ages. But one day, as he was being pressured to recant for his stance upon the Word of God, and while he was being pressured to give up those beliefs about what the Bible teaches, he decided, after all that pressure, to recant. He was actually a Protestant reformer who once stood for the truth of God's word, but he recanted. And here's the thing, folks. When you stand for God's word, you become a target of Satan. You become a target for Satan. He was an individual who actually recanted. He signed the recant notice and says, all right, I'm going to back away from this. I don't want to end up like my brothers or sisters that were burned at the stake. That very night, he goes home, and you know what he ends up reading? He ends up reading the story about how Peter rejected Jesus. Peter rejected Jesus. He gets so convicted by this, he marches right back and he says, I recant my recant. And sure enough, sure enough, they put him on that stake and they're about to burn him. And they said, all right, we're going to give you one more chance to recant. We're going to give you one more chance to walk away from this. And you know what he said? He said, burn my hand first for signing that recant notice. Ooh, Folks, for the courage of martyrs. If we'd only have the courage of martyrs today to stand up for what the Bible teaches. But too often today we walk away from the scriptures. Too often today we give up believing what the word of God teaches. But it was for the simple truths of scripture that reformers died for. And if you got the spirit of the reformers, the Holy Spirit, you're going to stand up for those exact same truths. Can you say amen to that? And God wants his people to stand for truth in these end times. Martin Luther, you can see, was somebody who identified very clearly who this Antichrist power was. And it wasn't simply because of the persecution that was taking place. It was because they could see from Bible prophecy that these, these prophecies fulfilled the papal tyranny. No question in the minds of all these reformers who the Antichrist was. They were going through that same experience. They were going through that exact experience the Bible was referring to. The great thing about history, folks, is that it goes hand in hand with Bible prophecy. Amen? 
we can check out the Bible and we can check out history, put it pro forma on it, and we can see why the Bible can be trusted. Can you say amen to that? God wants his people today to stand up for the truth. Do you remember one of the things that Jesus said would take place at the end of time? What he said would be so rampant. He said that deception would increase. That there would be worldwide deception. But folks, that's why we have the word of God. You may be somebody today who doesn't feel that God is close to you. You may be somebody today who is wondering whether or not there is a God in heaven. Folks, I want to let you know something. Don't go by feeling. Go by the word of God. Amen? And the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Can you say amen to that? And over and over again, you see plenty of evidence to clearly identify who this papal power was. Obviously, you notice from Revelation chapter 13 that the, this number of the beast would be 666, a representation that this is man's number. Do you remember what day man was created? He was created on the sixth day. And so what this papal power represents in that number, he represents man-made attempts to get to heaven. I want to say that one more time. Man-made attempts to get to heaven. Folks, it is only through the grace of Jesus that we are saved. Amen? And we discover that these pompous words will be spoken. Here are some of the quotes coming from Catholic literature and Catholic leaders themselves. And I want to state something, folks. We're talking about the system more than we're talking about the people. Amen? It is the system that God has a difficult problem with because the system is a counterfeit of what the Bible actually teaches. Now watch some of the quotes. You're getting it straight from the sources. And by the way, if you want more, I have about three or four pages of this. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of flesh. Folks, do you remember what the Bible teaches? That there is only one Jesus, amen? And he's in heaven on our behalf, mediating but the Bible teaches that no man is God. Here's another one. For thou art another God on earth. Folks, the Bible's very clear about this. Do you remember what the Pharisees accused Jesus of? Blasphemy. And they said for two reasons. Number one, he claims to be God. And number two, he claims to have the power to forgive sins. Now, did Jesus commit blasphemy in claiming to be God? Did he commit blasphemy in claiming to forgive sins? No, because he was God, and number two, he could forgive sins. Can you say amen to that? But the Bible makes it very clear that this little horn power commits blasphemy. And if we look from Scripture what the definition of blasphemy is, it is number one, claiming to be God, and number two, claiming to forgive sins. And you discover that these elements are very present within this system. Claiming to be God and claiming to forgive sins. And I praise Jesus that I don't have to go to a temple or to a church, but I can go straight right into my closet and I can worship Jesus and I can ask for forgiveness. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord that God is accessible at all times. We also discovered that there would be more identifiers. We discovered that this Antichrist power has a big problem with God's law. We discovered in Daniel chapter 7, he would intend to change 
times and laws. And we learned that this power actually changed the fourth commandment and deleted the second commandment. Watch some of the quotations that come from Catholic literature. The Pope is of great authority and power that he is able to modify, declare, or interpret even divine laws. The Pope can modify divine law since his power is not a man, but of God, and he acts as a vicegerent of God upon earth. But the Bible makes it very clear that his law stands forever and ever. Can you say amen to that? And it was through the change of the laws that corruption, idolatry, entered in through the dark ages. And it's these things the Bible warns us against that we should not put away the word of God. Can you say amen to that? Now let's take our Bible. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. And by the way, you can find all the books that start with T in the New Testament. They're grouped together. So look for any book in the New Testament that starts with T, and you'll find Thessalonians there. And they're alphabetized as well. We're going to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 3. All right, guys, I hope you got your, your seatbelts buckled in because we're about to start speeding up. All right, let's go. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the what? Falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Who else in the Bible was called the son of perdition? And do you remember what Judas was? He was somebody who followed Jesus, but inwardly he was corrupt, the Bible teaches. Externally he followed Jesus, but inwardly he was corrupt. So this Antichrist power, from all, from all views, from all perspectives, would seem to be an outwardly religious, religious, a good power, but actually the Bible points it out that it's not. Let's keep going. For the mystery of what? I'm sorry, I skipped ahead of you guys. Look at verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship. So he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is what? God. Now look at verse 5. Do you not remember when I, told, when, I, when I was still with you that I told you these things? Now watch what he says. It's so key. And now you may know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. Look at verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be what? Revealed. Now, I want you to stop right there. Notice what Paul is saying. Do not miss this sequence. He is saying, guess what? Hey, he was telling all the believers, before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a revelation of who the man of sin is. This son of perdition, this antichrist power. And then Paul says something very interesting. He says this, but before he is revealed... He who now is will be removed. Now, what time of earth's history was Paul living in? Paul was living at the time of pagan Rome. Paul was living at the time of pagan Rome. And Paul knew the, the prophecies of the book of Daniel. And he knew that when pagan Rome would cease, that this power would rise up. And sure enough, just as Bible prophecy predicted... This power did rise up. But pay attention to this. It talks about the coming of the lawless one. The coming of the lawless one. Now that's very important. The Antichrist power is called 
the lawless one. Why is he called the lawless one? Because he has a big problem with God's law, and his boss, the devil, has a really big problem with God's law. Now I'm going to show you something very interesting. Go to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation's the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Are we all there? Okay, Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 7. And war broke out where? In heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole what? The whole world. Now, what is he deceiving the whole world about? He's deceiving the whole world about the character of God. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Notice this. This is the war behind all other wars. This war starts in heaven and then it migrates to planet earth. Now watch at the very last verse of this central chapter of the book of Revelation where the devil launches his final attack at the end of time. Verse 17. And the dragon was, what's that next word? Enraged. Who's he enraged with? He's enraged with the woman, and a woman represents a church or God's people in Bible prophecy. He was enraged with the woman, and he went to make what? War with the rest of her offspring. Now watch this. Who are the rest of the offspring? Who keep the what? Commandments of God and have the testimony of what? Jesus Christ. Notice this. The devil is launching his final attack. But he takes it from heaven to earth, and at the very end of time, he's honing in on this target, and the Bible makes it very clear that it is those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. This is the very end. In fact, when you read the very next chapter, it shows you what he does to cause this war. The Bible in Revelation 13 talks about the mark of the beast. And you don't want to miss the next few nights because that's where we start getting into the mark of the beast. So the devil's last attack is done through the mark of the beast. But the Bible makes it very clear. He's not just happy with the people of God. He's definitely not happy. But the Bible says he's enraged. Now, when is the last time you've ever used that word? I'm enraged. Hopefully not. Right? Here's the thing. That is a word that you would generally use when you are just utterly furious, when you've had enough, when you're about to make your last stand, you're throwing everything in this, and you are just putting everything on the line, and you're going to do your best at this moment to stop what's about to take place. And the Bible makes it very clear he's enraged, but who is he enraged with? The Bible says, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Folks, the Bible makes it very clear as we continue to step forward to the end of time, we will discover that the devil will become more and more exposed and you will see that his war will be completely honing in on those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Now what we're going to do tonight, we're going to see why the devil is so angry with God's law. What is it about God's law that is so important? And why is it that we should keep God's law? 
There's a lot of mystery concerning God's law. There's a lot of secrets concerning God's law. But we need to see what the Bible says about the God's law. Can you say amen to that? So make sure you write this down in your study guide, okay? We're going to start with this. Facts about God's law. Facts about God's law. We discover in the book of Exodus that God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. And God says something about this. Read the book of Exodus, chapter 31, verse 18. You're going to discover a very important fact, the first fact about God's law. Exodus 31, verse 18. That's the second book of the Bible, so go there right now. Are we all there? That's page 83. Page 83. Now watch what the Bible says about the law of God. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai... He gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the what? Finger of God. So the first fact we need to understand about the Ten Commandments is that God's law was written by his own finger. In fact, when you study the book of, throughout the, the Bible, you'll discover there are three things that God writes with his finger. The Bible says that God writes his law with his finger. You read the book of Daniel, God wrote judgment with his finger. And you discover that when Jesus is around Mary Magdalene, that he's writing the sins of the Pharisee in the ground. Three things that God wrote with his finger. He wrote righteousness with his finger. He wrote judgment with his finger. And he wrote sin with his finger. Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. And he says when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's very interesting. So the first fact we need to understand is that God's law was written by his own what? Finger. Very good. Very good. You also discover something very important about the sanctuary services throughout the entire Old Testament. You discover that inside the Ark of the, of, Ark of the Covenant was God's law. Now take your Bible. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. This is extremely important. You're going to see why this is important. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. That's page 1153. And here Paul is describing what's in the sanctuary and what's inside the ark. Look at verse 3. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called holiest of all, or most holy place, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Folks, the Bible makes it very clear, and you can also look at Exodus chapter 25, I believe it's verse 10 through 16, that God chose that inside the ark were the Ten Commandments. Inside the ark were the Ten Commandments. Now, why is that very important? Because the Bible says, besides the ark was the book of Moses. Besides the ark was the book of Moses. Now, we got to make sure we get our facts straight from the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 24 through 26. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 24 through 26. The Ten Commandments are inside the ark. The book of Moses was besides the ark. In fact, you'll discover that the Ten Commandments were written in stone, and the book of Moses was put in a papyrus book. Look at verse 24. 
So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of the law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take the book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and it may be there as a what? A witness. What's that next word? Against you. Now, this is very important. Pay attention to the language. God told the Israelites, he was telling them, look, Take the book of Moses. I want you to write it down. All the little laws that have to do with government, all the little laws, I shouldn't say little, all the laws that had to do with sacrifices, all the laws that had to do with feast days, with seven-year Sabbaths, those feast Sabbaths, all the laws that had to do with the various types of drinks that took place and eating on those feast days, all the laws that had to do with all the various sacrifices, God told Moses, I don't want you to put it in stone. I'm not going to put it in stone. I'm actually going to put it in a book, and I want you to put this book beside the ark. Beside the ark. And it will be there as a witness against you. Now, this is very important. Why was it a witness against them? You know, it's very interesting. I go to the park, the Loma Park, and there's a, a very unusual sign there. You go into that park and you'll discover, and it talks about golfing. Apparently, there's been some type of problem about golfing that's plagued the people of the Loma Park. And so the park officials put this sign about golfing, and it says, please do not golf in the park. Do not throw golf balls in the park. Do not carry golf sticks in the park. And it goes through this litany of describing things you might do with a golf stick that you may not normally do. Why is that? Why is that? It's because people kept pushing the boundaries. People kept pushing the boundaries. You know, it's very interesting. The children of Israel, they were in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. Can you imagine that? Several generations of being in slavery, not being educated, not being civilized, dealing with just a, a taskmaster who whips you, over and over again, the Israelites had lost their humanity. They lost their religion. They lost their, their picture of God. But what took place is that when God delivered them with a the mighty hand, and they came through that Red Sea, that God gave them the Ten Commandments, but God also gave them the book of Moses to help them understand the Ten Commandments. In other words, as they continue, continue to push the boundaries of the law, God says, okay, now I'm going to set up these little laws. These little laws are actually going to surround the Ten Commandments, and it's because you keep pushing the envelope. And so what you find, for example, when you're reading the first few books of Moses, you'll, write, you'll, you'll read about laws like this, that when your neighbor's cow walks away from your neighbor's property, Go take that cow and bring it right back. Now you would think to yourself, okay, why is that necessary to state? It's because the people had not been educated. They had lost sight of morals. And the Ten Commandments were not enough for the children of Israel. God says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to surround the Ten Commandments with a bunch of other laws and call it the Book of Moses. And they're going to help you live the Ten Commandments. But folks, I want you to understand something. All that, Moses, all that was written in the book of Moses was meant to be temporary. It was meant to be temporary. Now pay attention to the language that was found in Deuteronomy 31. It says that it shall be as a witness, what? Against you. Now take your Bible, go to Colossians chapter 2. I want you to see something very important. 
Colossians chapter 2. A lot of people use this verse, and they don't use it in context. A lot of people will misquote this verse, and they'll say things like, we're no longer under the law, the law was done away with. But you're going to see exactly at the cross what was actually done away with. Take your Bible, go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Are we all there? By the way, a good place of finding where the book of Colossians is, is to remember this. General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you can remember General Electric, or that works better. We're going to Colossians chapter 2. And let's start with verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now pay attention to verse 14. Having wiped away the handwriting of requirements that was, what's that next word? Against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now pay attention to verse 16. So, this is the conclusion, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or the Sabbaths. And so what was done away with at the cross was everything that was incorporated in the Mosaic law. And that was the food, the certain types of foods that were required on the feast days. There were certain ways to eat on a feast day. The yearly Sabbaths, the feast Sabbaths were done away with. What you also discover is the various sacrifices were done away with at the cross. But what was not done away with at the cross was the Ten Commandment law. There's a reason why God told Moses, put this in a book and put it beside the ark. Because it was only meant to be temporary. But there was a big reason why God put the Ten Commandments in stone and inside the ark. Now you're going to discover something very interesting. Pay attention to Revelation chapter 11 verse 19. Look what the Bible says right here. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. John in heaven is seeing a revelation. He is seeing something in heaven. He is seeing the various pieces of the sanctuary in heaven. Now look what it says. And the ark of his covenant was seen in his what? Temple. In heaven, the Bible teaches, there is a sacred ark. There is a sacred ark. Indicating what? That God's law is eternal. God's law is eternal. It is the foundation of his heavenly government. God's law is eternal. God's law is eternal. Now take your Bible. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. 5 verse 17 Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 through 19 are we all there that's page 938 in your Bible now watch what Jesus says right here do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets 
I did not come to destroy or fulfill. Now, if you just take a simple Greek concordance, what you'll discover about the word destroy is the word, it's also the word alter or modify or change. Notice why Jesus came. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy or to change or to modify the law of the scriptures. Look what he says. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, of, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the whole law till all is fulfilled. Now look at verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called what? Great in the kingdom of heaven. The Bible makes it very clear that God's Ten Commandment law is still binding. So what was done away at the cross? What was done away at the cross was the laws of Moses, the book of Moses that was written and that was placed beside the ark. The Bible is very clear that Jesus did not come to change the law of God. He came to keep the law of God. In fact, the Bible says in Psalms 111, verses 7 through 8, all his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever. God's law is the foundation of his heavenly government. Romans chapter 3, look what the Bible says right here. That verse 20, by the law is what? Knowledge of sin. By the law is knowledge of sin. The Bible teaches what the purpose of the law of God is, and one of its functions is to show us what sin is. Any sin that you can name falls under the category of one of the, trans of one of the laws that is being transgressed in the Ten Commandments. The law shows us what sin is. And folks, when we say there's no law or we're no longer under the law, we don't know what sin is. And if we don't know what sin is, then we don't need a savior. And I want you to see the logic of that, folks. It's extremely important. Don't miss this point. Watch what Paul says right here in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. The Bible teaches that the law of God is a mirror. And this mirror is designed to show us what sin is. To show us what sin is. Excuse me for just a second. You know, it's very interesting is that I can still preach and you guys can still hear me all the way even behind this. Can you guys see my silhouette? Okay, very good. You know... I really appreciate being part of this seminar because it's at this seminar that I begin to learn a lot of things as well as, I'm, as well as I'm preaching. And it's so remarkable because it's times like this that I really begin to understand all the things that are happening all over the world again. You know, I praise the Lord for His goodness. Can you say amen to that? Oh, it's a little dirty back there and dusty. Well, let's continue. All right, let's go to our next verse right now. We're going to Romans. We just read Romans chapter 7, verse 7. All right. 1 John chapter 3, verse... Now, why are you guys chuckling right now? Well, 1 John chapter 3, verse... What's on my face? Okay. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. I don't know that there's dirt on my face. I don't know that there are marks on my face. I have no idea. I cannot see. 
the dirt on my face. So you know what I'm going to need? It's a device. Sometimes it's found in a woman's purse. It's called a compact mirror. Does anybody have a compact mirror right now? Okay, very good. Thank you, Amy. Wonderful. I really appreciate that. Okay, wow, that is small. Well, I am noticing the marks right there on my face. Here's the thing I want you to understand, folks, is that the Bible teaches that the law is like a mirror. Now, this mirror cannot clean me from sin. The Bible teaches that this law points, me and points to me and shows me what sin looks like. And I can see very clearly that my face now has marks on it. This is what the law of God does. And I'll give this right back to you when you're done. And so when you realize that there is sin in your life, folks, this is why the blood of Jesus is necessary. Can you say amen to that? And this is why that the, the blood of Christ, the heart of God, is extremely necessary. Because when you begin to realize that there is sin in your life, you're able to take the blood of Jesus and you're able to apply it to those sins. Can you say amen to that? And when you apply the blood of Jesus, you discover that your sin has been washed away. I hope this is washed away. Okay, very good. Praise God, folks. And that's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. By the law is knowledge of sin. By the law is knowledge of sin. One of the reasons why the devil hates the law of God is because it points to us. It points to the fact that we are sinners and that we need God's grace to cleanse us. Can you say amen to that? But if there is no law, if the law is done away with, if the law is removed, then folks, we don't know that we are sinners. And if we don't know we are sinners, then we don't know if we need the blood of Jesus. But that's why the Ten Commandments are extremely important. Take your Bible, go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Page 1169. These are one of the, uh, this is one of the epistles of John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Now watch what John the Revelator says. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits what? Lawlessness and sin. Now watch the definition of sin. Sin is what? Lawlessness. Or look in some translation, it says sin is the transgression of God's law. What sin is? The Bible makes it very clear. It is the breaking of God's law. It is the breaking of God's law. Well, look at Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Look what the Bible says. This is fact number seven. The law brings us happiness. Look what the scriptures teach. Happy is he who keeps the law. Happy is he who keeps thy law. The Bible makes it very clear. The law brings us happiness. Now you're thinking to yourself, in which way does the law bring us happiness? Well, imagine marriage. Imagine marriage, folks. The Bible makes it very clear in one of the commandments, thou shall not commit adultery. And what God is doing, he is safeguarding the marriage. And it is marriages that are holy. It is marriages that are pure. It is people who are committed to each other and understand God's plans for their life who find happiness in obedience to the word of God. Can you say amen to that? 
And what God's law is, God's law protects us from getting off the path. God's law protects us from falling off the way. The Lord Jesus gives us the Ten Commandments so that we may be happy, holy Christians. Can you say amen to that? And that comes to keeping the law of God. God's law protects us from falling into error. God's law protects us from falling into sin. Psalms 19, verse 7. Here's another fact. Fact number 8, the law transforms us. Psalms 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. What's that next word? Converting the soul. The Bible makes it very clear that when we take the Ten Commandments and we live a life in accordance with God's law to the best of our ability, what takes place is a transformation. What takes place is a transformation. And one of the clearest examples I can give you is my own life. I was somebody who was involved in the worship of over 300 million deities. I was somebody who lived a life without morals. I was somebody who came up with his own law and his own way of living. But when I began to realize that there is a God in heaven, and this God of heaven has the best, holiest, happy, most noble way to live a life found in the law of God, my life began to change. Folks, here's the thing. If anybody ever tells you we're no longer under the law, we don't need to keep the law, or we can't keep the law, all you simply need to do is bring up an example. Here's the example. If you find somebody, for example, who is a Hindu, okay? And Hindu or polytheist or somebody who is worshiping many, many different gods. And you say to them, I want to introduce you to the God of the Bible. And they say something to you. They say this. We're no longer under the law. You would say, what do you mean? We're no longer under the law. I don't have to worship just that one God as the first commandments because we're no longer under the law. Do you see why common sense teaches us that the law cannot be abrogated, the law cannot be removed? If you meet somebody who's in an adulterous relationship, who's cheated on their wife, and they're committing adultery with somebody, and you would say to them, hey, you need to make sure, you need to change your ways, you need to amend your wrongs, you need to stop committing adultery, and they'll say something like this to you, well, we're no longer under the law. Do you see why the law cannot be changed? The Bible makes it very clear. We are no, long, no longer under the law's penalty, but we are still under the law's requirements. We are still under the law's responsibility. God calls us in our best efforts to follow the God law, and he supplies the grace. He supplies the grace. We also discover in Exodus 33 that the law is a transcript of the character of God. The law is a transcript of the character of God. You know, it's very interesting. One day Moses was on top of the Mount Sinai and he was praying, Lord, show me your glory. Lord, show me your glory. And you know what God does? God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go hide in the cleft of the rock. I want you to get two tablets of stone and I want you to see something. But you're not going to see my face. You're only going to see my back. And so the Bible teaches at that moment that God shares with him his beautiful character and it says the glory of the Lord passed by and God gives him the Ten Commandments. And what you discover throughout the entire Bible, what the law is, it is a picture, it is a transcript of who 
God really is. It is a picture of His holiness. It is a picture of His character, of His behavior. And folks, the reason why Satan hates the law of God is because it is a picture. I love using this example because I really believe that it bears an important point. If there was a man and a woman who were once dating and they broke up, and the woman is very angry with her ex-boyfriend. And as she's going throughout all her memorabilia and all the, the various things that once belonged to her boyfriend, she comes across a picture. She comes across a what? A picture. And when she sees that picture, you know what she does? She gets enraged. That's exactly right. And she decides what she's going to do with that picture. She's going to destroy that picture. She's going to burn up that picture. And so when the devil sees the law of God, when he hears about the law of God, he gets enraged and he seeks to destroy the law of God because it reminds him of God. It reminds him of God. And so when Moses saw the glory of God, what he actually heard was the character of God and what was given to him on those tablets of stone was a transcript of the character of God. Maybe Friday I'll have to get you a sheet where it actually describes various um, adjectives and nouns that were used to describe God and the exact same adjectives and nouns that were used to describe the law of God. It'll say God is holy, the law is holy, God is just, the law is just. And over and over again you see an entire page full how God compares himself to his law because the law is simply a transcript of who he is. And folks, this is exciting because the Ten Commandments, they define two things for us. Number one, the character of God. We see the holiness of God. We see the goodness of God. We see his love, the law of love. And we discover the character of sin, what sin really is. And a world that has removed from itself the law of God it has plunged more and more into darkness, into moral chaos and problems. Folks, the Bible makes it very clear that God wants us to follow his law. Can you say amen to that? First John chapter 5, verse 3, and 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, verses 6 say something very interesting. It says this, this is love that we keep his Commandments. I want to say that one more time. This is love that we keep his commandments. God shows us that the way we're going to show love or response to God's grace and God's salvation for us is to keep the Ten Commandments. Now we know we fall short of the glory of God, but God supplies the grace. And where we make mistakes and where we fall into sin, folks, we ask for forgiveness and accept the righteousness of God. Can you say amen to that? And it is the religion that only comes from God that leads to God. That leads to God. You look at, for example, the, uh, the Constitution. And you look at the first, ten, the first ten rights of the Constitution. And what are they called? The Bill of Rights, right? The Bill of Rights, for example. 
You know, some people will tell you things like this. They'll say, all we need to do is love God and love your neighbor. But folks, if you were to take just those two simple principles and not say what those mean, what those things actually mean, if you were to go to India or Pakistan or several different other countries, you will discover that what Hindus do essentially, they'll tell you, is that we love God and we love our neighbor. But you see, it is those two principles which hold up the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments represent our love to God. And the last six represent our love to mankind. Love for God and love for our neighbor. And how does the Constitution play in this? Folks, if we were just to simply say, hey, this is the, the foundation of our government, all you need to do is be free and respect the freedom of others. Folks, you know what would take place? There would be absolute chaos and anarchy. And so what we find in the Constitution is God, what we find is mankind's best attempt right there to make sure that all there's various rights that need to make sure they're respected in order to fully understand those principles. And so what you find in the first four commandments is what love to God represents. And what you find in the last six of those commandments is what love to your neighbor really is. Can you say amen to that? Isaiah chapter 42 through 21 says this. Fact number 10, Jesus taught and kept the law of God. Jesus taught and kept the law of God. Watch what the Bible says about him. This was a messianic prophecy. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will, what's that next word? Exalt the law and make it what? Honorable. You know what happened during the time of the Pharisees and the various Jews and Sadducees? They took the law of God. They corrupted the law of God. They took the law of God and made it so much burdened, uh, burdensome that when it came to the law of God, people wanted nothing to do with the law of God. On the Sabbath commandment, for example, the fourth commandment, they added 400 extra laws in addition to just what the fourth commandment was simply saying. And by doing so, people became so worn out with it, and Jesus had to correct that. When it came to the first commandment, or the second commandment, or the commandment about adultery, there were so many stipulations that the Pharisees added that the law became so burdensome. But what Jesus came to do was to teach and exemplify what the Ten Commandments look like. And so when the Bible says... Christ is the finality of the law. What it's simply saying is what the law looks like as it's being kept in completion is what you find in the character of Christ. Now watch this. Did Jesus keep the law? Psalms 40, verses 7. Verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight, I delight to do your will, Oh my God, and your law is within my heart. What is synonymous with doing the will of God? Keeping the law. Synonymous with the will of God is the law of God. One of the reasons why we're praying for God's will to be done on earth, because earth is a place where God's will is not being accomplished, God's law is not being kept. But do we need to pray for God's will to be done in heaven, yes or no? No, because God's law is already being practiced in heaven. God's law is already being kept in heaven. There is supreme love to God in heaven, and there is supreme love for each other in heaven. And folks, what you find is that the eternal law of his government reigns. But it's on earth that this doesn't take place. On earth, this doesn't take place. 
John chapter 15, verse 10. Watch what Jesus says right here. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus kept the commandments of God. Jesus followed the law of God. Jesus exalted the law of God. And folks, God calls for His followers to do the same. God calls for His followers to keep the law as well. And folks, it's so remarkable when you realize it that the God of heaven and earth gives us this law, this way of living. He gives us this noble purpose. And what we can do in practicing the law of God to the best of our ability and with the grace of Jesus, we bring heaven on earth by our characters, by the work that God does in our life. Anybody who ever tells you there is no law anymore, anybody who ever stops following or teaches that the law has been done away with, Folks, all you need to do is point to only one example. One clear example shows you that God's law cannot be changed, is the cross. What do you mean? Because if God's law could be changed, then Jesus would not have had to die. If God's law could just simply be adjusted, then Jesus would not have to die. But because an eternal law was broken in heaven, because an eternal law was broken, Jesus paid the price for us, showing that the law of God is, cannot be changed. And that's why the Bible teaches that God is the just, is God is just and the justifier of them who love him. God is just and the justifier of those who love him. Folks, we're all sinners on the path to understanding more and more of God's goodness. But God says something very interesting, John 14, verse 15. If, if you love me, he says, keep my commandments. And why do we love God? Because he poured out his love to us. Keeping the commandments doesn't save us, but it's in response to his salvation. It's in response to God's grace. And folks, it's times like this where God's law has been cast down, where the law of heaven and earth has been thrust aside, that God is calling his people again to keep his law, to follow after him, to do the things he asks us to do. Folks, in these end times, the dragon is very angry with the people of God who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Folks, if you look in your heart and you look in my heart, what you'll discover is something very interesting. We'll discover that we are so far off the mark. And when we go to Jesus, we see so many times that we have sinned against God and we say, Lord, how is this possible? But God covers us. He cleanses us. And the same God who says, neither do I condemn you, also says to us, Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. And go and sin no more. How many people today want to say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to keep your law. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. God, how many times do we fall short?
Yet the great lawgiver of the universe still loves us. Thank you, Jesus, because we can't even keep the law without your grace. But you promise that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And Lord, the change begins in our heart. We're not perfect people, Lord. You're the only one who's perfect. And you're the only one who can lead us and guide us on this journey. God, we want to live a life that's after your character. We want to be like you, Lord. Be like Jesus. Thank you so much, God. In your holy name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.